Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. On today's episode, Jen and I are going to talk about Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. In January of this year, there was a major motion picture starring Michael B. Jordan as Brian Stevenson and Jamie Foxx as his client, Walter McMillan. And that movie received tremendous accolades. It's won many awards. And it just is an overall really important story and commentary on the criminal justice system in this country. Because of the impact that this book has had on my life uh, and Brian Stephen has had on my life, and of course with me sharing this with Jen and knowing that this is also something that's incredibly important to Jen, we decided that this is going to be a book that we wanted to read together. We invited our listeners to read this book along with us. We did a book giveaway. So hopefully you are listening to this and you have read the book. If not, no worries. You aren't going to be lost. We're going to definitely go into a lot of it. So some spoiler alerts, but this is just going to be a really good framework for you if you are thinking about reading the book, but even if you choose not to read the book, this is just going to give you uh, an idea of who Brian Stevenson is, some of the work that he does and the Equal Justice Initiative does, as well as some of our thoughts about this book and how it has affected us. One of the things I wanted to start off with is just discussing some of the themes and sharing with everyone several of the themes that show up in this book. If you are interested in learning more about any of these things and and getting a really personal story and personal stories attached to these different themes, then it really hits everything. Some of the themes that are recurring in this book are wrongful convictions and imprisonment, the overrepresentation and disproportionate number of poor folks and people of color in our country's jails, prisons, and on death row, police brutality, racial bias and discrimination in court proceedings with regards to having all white counsel, all white prosecutors and defense teams, all white juries and all white judges, skin color as a presumption of guilt, and the criminalization of black bodies, the death penalty, life in prison, cruel and unusual punishment, how this country treats folks with mental illness inside of the criminal justice system, solitary confinement, children being sent to adult prisons, children being sentenced to life in prison, children being sentenced to death row, um, as well as mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex. So if you are interested or curious about the way that any of those structures and concepts work in our legal system and structure today, this book covers all of it. So let's begin with, Jen, I'd love for you to share how you experienced this book. Mm, Yeah. So the other day I posted online that I believe that Just Mercy is one of the most important books of our time. And I encouraged people to read it and commit to reading it. I came really close to saying, and I will buy you 
a copy if you DM me. But I thought maybe, you know, I'd give my husband a slight little heart attack at the moment. But I'm that fired up about the importance of this book. I listened to Brian Stevenson read it on Audible. And that in itself was a really cerebral experience for me to listen to him in his voice, read his words and these stories about his life and his work and his experience with all of these incarcerated people that he fought for. Reading this book absolutely solidified for me how unjust and impossible it is for us to have the system that we have in any just fashion. Like we just can't do it. Every single story just peeled away layer after layer for me that maybe was still sort of stuck, you know, inside of me. The things that I've heard, the things that I grew up believing. I mean, I just feel like I was cracked open in so many ways it's hard for me to quantify how I feel about it because it's such an important book and it has made such an impact on my life. I don't understand how somebody could read this book and come to the end of it still supporting the death penalty or still supporting the system of incarceration that we have today. Something that you mentioned that I wanted to share with everyone, if you haven't read the book, something for you to know is that every part of the criminal justice system that the Equal Justice Initiative is committed to fighting against. In the book, there is a story of actual people who represent that issue. So for example, Jen and I have talked about some of the things that jumped out at us the most having read this book. And one of those things, as I mentioned as one of the themes, is the ways that children in this country are sent to adult prisons, the way that children are sentenced to life in prison, and the way that children have been sentenced to death row. And that is something that the Equal Justice Initiative is still going to the Supreme Court to overturn some of the the ways that we deal with children inside of prison. And then being able to attach the stories Here are some of the actual children. Here are their names. Here are the situations that created whatever caused them to break the law or commit the crime. And then here is the process and here's what they went through to go from being accused to having the trial to then being sentenced. And then what that looks like for them to spend decades in prison for them to, and for the Equal Justice Initiative to fight for um, 13 and 14 year olds to not be on death row or serving life sentences for non-homicide offenses. So here's something that the book tells us. On May 17th, 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that sentences of life imprisonment without parole imposed on children convicted of non-homicide crimes are cruel and unusual punishment and constitutionally impermissible. It was the first time the court had issued a categorical ban on a punishment other than the death penalty. 
And then it goes on to say that two years later, in June of 2012, Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative won a constitutional ban on mandatory life without parole sentences imposed on children convicted of homicide. Yeah. And the thing that was really interesting to me as I was learning about these stories and listening, there were two things. One, I have not been incarcerated and I don't have any close family who have been incarcerated. So I really don't have experience with the criminal justice system in any tangible way. And so a lot of this reading and a lot of this book was opening my eyes to things that I just wouldn't even think about. You know, like the the processing, how people sit in jail on bail, how the impoverished without access to money to pay bail means that then they might sit in jail for six months, a year, two years, like things that I just... I didn't even understand or know about. That was one thing. The other thing was with regards to children, like you and I were talking, it was shocking, especially as a parent who has children who are 10 years of age and understands where they're at. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to him talk about stories of a couple of kids who were 12 years old, 13 years old. And even some of the people who were younger than that and what they were going through and what they were dealing with from a trauma standpoint, Uh, It was amazing to me as a parent of children and as somebody who understands in a very general way, the way the brain works, decision-making, trauma, all of these things, how anybody could put a 12-year-old in prison, let alone for a life sentence. So I didn't understand this. And then the dates, the fact that this is 2010, 2012. You know, like learning about this and realizing like we're living in the midst of incredible brokenness in the criminal justice system today. You know, like so often you want to think, oh, well, that was horrible. And that was 60, 70 years ago. And it's like, no, this is literally going on right now. That's the thing that I was completely unaware of. Like you were saying, prior to reading this book, I had no point of reference that these types of injustices, these types of things were happening today, present time. One of the stats in the book is that the United States has sent a quarter of a million children to adult prisons and jails. Some are under the age of 12. I think that we have to decide how we feel about living in a country that is doing this to children. In addition to just mass incarceration in general, in addition to what we know about the inevitability of error when it comes to convicting folks of crimes and then sentencing them to life in prison or to the death penalty. And another thing that really hit me were some of the stories where once this was passed and once the Supreme Court came down with this judgment, Brian Stevenson is talking about his clients who are in their 60s or 70s who have been in prison since they were 12 years old with life sentences and the toll that living in prison has taken on the bodies and the brains of people. It was devastating just to to learn about this and to realize this. And it was really eye-opening. One last fact with regards to children, because I know that that was something that stood out for both you and I as mothers in particular. Yeah. Um, by 2010, Florida had sentenced more than 100 children to life imprisonment without parole for non-homicide offenses. All of the youngest condemned children, 13 or 14 years of age, were Black or Latino. 
Florida had the largest population in the world of children condemned to die in prison for non-homicides. When we're looking at just each individual state's roles in this type of injustice, and, and then recognizing that we need to be making decisions when it comes to who we are voting for and putting in office at the state level, um, in addition to at the federal level, but just looking at what is involved and what what is happening at local levels that is allowing this type of thing to happen today. Well, and this is why we talk about the importance of understanding implicit bias, the importance of understanding that black and brown children are seen differently and are approached differently within the educational system. You know, we just had this story of the six-year-old who was arrested and taken to jail from her school for throwing a tantrum. She is six years old, right? It's absurd. And yet you look at how this has been going on within the criminal justice system. Well, let's shift the conversation a little bit and let's talk Mm -hmm. about mental illness and the role that that has played with regards to people suffering from mental illness inside of the legal system. More data from the book directly says the internment of hundreds of thousands of poor and mentally ill people has been a driving force in achieving record levels of imprisonment. Today, more than 50% of prison and jail inmates in the United States have a diagnosed mental illness, a rate nearly five times greater than that of the general adult population. The number of seriously mental ill individuals in jail or prison is more than three times higher than in hospitals. And in some states, that number is 10 times higher. This country needs to find a way to stop criminalizing mental illness and start treating it as a health crisis and a health concern and not placing folks who suffer from mental illness inside of these prisons and jails and criminal institutions. And I think Brian Stevenson has several examples in the book that really follows the the devastation of what that looks like, not only to the individual who suffers from mental illness, but also to these families and, and to the communities that they are a part of. Yeah. And that was a big realization as well for me, just getting to this point where you realize like we've had so many gaps in our healthcare system and in our communities. And our answer as a nation has been to incarcerate people, those who are in poverty, those who struggle with mental illness, those who have struggled with trauma. We don't have the things in place to help and assist people. And so we imprison them. And that speaks to what we value as a country in the United States. The United States has not ever taken accountability and been held responsible for everything from the genocide of Native people to enslavement and into now what we have as mass incarceration. When we talk about mental illness, just to go back to that really quickly, I think about LA right now and the recent legislation that was passed with reform LA jails. Um, and the work of Patrice Con Cullors, who's one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and how you know she and, and so many folks, so many activists and advocates there, work so hard to um, bring about and, and to pass that type of legislation, where we are looking at and acknowledging and, and, and recognizing that we 
have to come together as individual members of communities to say to demand change and demand things that we were not we're not going to be putting funding into building more prisons we're instead going to put that funding into improving and increasing the availability of healthcare and, and mental health care specifically. And then even creating, working with some of these grassroots organizations and local groups who are committed to finding ways and creating ways to have, for, for police to not be the first folks that respond when it's a call or a situation that requires a mental health check which is something that we see too often. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier about the importance of even voting locally. I'm going to admit to you right now that when it comes to voting for local judges, I don't really pay attention and I don't really know who is who and how they vote. And that has been changing recently, but particularly while listening to this book. And there is this section of the book where Brian talks about the way that our society works, that it's a good thing to be seen as tough on crime. And he talked about how during an election year, you will see a higher level of incarceration and harsher penalties and punishments given by these judges because they know they don't want, you know, election time to come around and have somebody put out an ad that says, so-and-so let this person free and then three people were murdered, you know? And, and so just to see the importance of voting and paying attention and getting involved locally, and then as well, getting involved in abolishing the death penalty in your state. If your state happens to have the death penalty, getting involved in abolition on other fronts. Yeah. And something that just happened recently, uh, I want to say a few weeks ago, is that the state of Colorado became the 22nd state to abolish the death penalty. So I don't know if folks understand that still more than half of our nation has the death penalty. Um, And again, when we look at the way that this racist, xenophobic, white supremacist society has been created How do we feel about this nation choosing to put people to death for crimes? Another important fact being that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have seen the prison population increase from 300,000 in the 70s to over 2 million. And really having to ask ourselves what role does capitalism play in this? What role does racism play in this? Asking ourselves and really taking an honest look at why Black and Brown folks are disproportionately represented in the prison system. As a society, how do we feel about the fact that one in three Black boys born in this country will spend time in jail. These numbers, and I I think that's why reading Just Mercy has been transformational for me, and that's why reading Just Mercy is so important. And I think I agree that Brian Stevenson is his hero. Bringing light to what he does and the Equal Justice Initiative is so important because we aren't, as a whole, aware of these numbers. This is allowed to continue because we aren't educating ourselves about the realities of this dysfunctional criminal justice system. And so the question then becomes, now that we know, what will we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think that's a really important point. 
Um, one of the things that was exciting to me as I was listening, you know, Brian talks about in the early 80s when he moved to Montgomery. And when you watch the movie, you see the reality of working in an office that has a fax machine and a telephone. And just sitting there and thinking about the fact that mobile phones didn't really exist then. And they were waiting for faxes and, and snail mail and all of this stuff to, to hear about the Supreme Court and their ruling on something. And today we've got information just downloading instantly so often. And so one thing I thought about is what an amazing opportunity we have today with our social media platforms, with people using their voices to speak out about this. You know, you think of how much the EJI just struggled to connect and gain support to today and how we can support this organization and this movement. And that's exciting to me because I feel like if people read this book, if people watch the movie, if people start to learn about this and understand more and see what Brian Stevenson and the EJI have done for laying a foundation and yet how much more there has to be done, I just feel like this could shift things significantly. And that is exciting to me. That is hopeful for me. Absolutely. We know that folks went into movie theaters in large numbers, watched Just Mercy on the screen and felt something. You know, this wasn't a story that was manufactured and came out of someone's imagination. Walter McMillan's story is sadly common when it comes to the folks that are inside and who are stuck inside and who are not being well represented, not having access to good legal counsel, right? Um, as, As well as the fact that there are just errors that are made. There are just errors that are made. There are intentional campaigns that serve to put folks in jail just because they want to have somebody to blame. We we saw that on the movie. That's also something that comes up over and over again in the stories in the book. And again, what role do we play as citizens to make the decision that we need to see change happen? With mass incarceration, with the prison industrial complex, here's another fact for everyone that spending on jails and prisons by state and federal governments has risen from 6.9 billion in 1980 to nearly 80 billion in 2014. And private prison builders and prison service companies have spent millions of dollars to persuade state and local governments to create new crimes, impose harsher sentences, and keep more people locked up so that they can earn more profits. So the corporations are out here absolutely on the front lines of how they can monetize and capitalize on the more bodies that are in prisons, the more money they're making. So how can we participate in, how can we join forces with groups and organizations to start seeing legislation come in where we aren't putting more money into building prisons and that money is being put into communities directly, into education, into healthcare. Now, do you have organizations other than the EJI that you would recommend at this point that you can think of? Other than the EJI, I'm Mm -hmm. always the Innocence Project, Live Free National, Color of Change. Those are just a few off the top of my head. I think those are good to have for people who are listening and curious. I mean, definitely the EJI, mm-hmm. but there are also other organizations and then local organizations as well. And there will be local chapters of some of those organizations. Mm-hmm. Almost 
everywhere there are local organizations, local grassroots organizations full of community organizers who organize rallies, protests, direct action efforts, who, you know, organize to get folks to show up for city council meetings. Um, Those types of things exist in so many places. So I would encourage folks to start to search for those types of organizations that they can connect with and participate in. Um, Black Lives Matter, they operate globally, but have local chapters everywhere. And if there isn't something that currently exists in your particular area, then reaching out to one of these existing organizations to find out what would be involved with you starting something. Yeah. So, you know, kind of to go back to what you mentioned, Jen, when you posted on your Facebook the other day about how impactful this book is, and you kind of asked folks to share their thoughts about it. I want to read to you what I wrote, because that is just a really, it it just is an explanation of how I experienced this book. In response to your question, your post said, Just Mercy is one of the most important books of our time. Have you read it? If not, will you commit to reading it? I answered, reading this book literally changed my life. Uh, Then someone asked me, how is this book life-changing? And I had a very long response. And here's my long response. I said, this book was life-changing for me because it opened my eyes to seeing the injustice of our legal system and how our nation has never had any truth and reconciliation as it relates to our history of racial terror and violence and the role that white supremacy and racism continues to play out in our society systemically and institutionally and how slavery never ended. It simply evolved into mass incarceration, which then led me to realize my calling to have and facilitate courageous conversations about dismantling racism, abolishing the death penalty, ending money bail, etc., which led me to create legacy trips, which are three-day anti-racism and yoga trips where we visit the lynching memorial and the legacy museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and use the practice and philosophy of yoga as tools to dismantle racism, as well as lead screenings and discussions of HBO's documentary, True Justice, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality Across the Nation. This book was the beginning of all of that for me. And that's my short answer. (laughs) I love that you read that. I really, I don't like to recommend, I mean, who am I kidding? I do. I like to tell people their business and I like to tell them what they should do. I'm trying to work on that. But I really do want to say that I think this is an incredibly important book. And for those who have asked, should I watch the movie or should I read the book? I think if at all possible, you should do both. And I think they're really complimentary because in the movie, you get to really dig deep into Walter McMillan's story, but the book goes even deeper and you get to learn more about Walter and what happened to him through his entire life. And that is such an important story to hear and bear witness to. So I just want to encourage everybody to go read the book, watch the movie. It doesn't matter what order you do it in. It is important. So that said, I'm going to read this excerpt. So Paul Farmer, the renowned physician who has spent his life trying to cure the world's sickest and poorest people, once quoted me something that the writer Thomas Merton said, We are bodies of broken bones. I guess I'd always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. 
Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. I thought of the guards strapping Jimmy Dill to the gurney that very hour. I thought of the people who would cheer his death and see it as some kind of victory. I realized they were broken people too, even if they would never admit it. So many of us have become afraid and angry. We've become so fearful and vengeful that we've thrown away children, discarded the disabled, and sanctioned the imprisonment of the sick and the weak. Not because they are a threat to public safety or beyond rehabilitation, but because we think it makes us seem tough, less broken. I thought of the victims of violent crime and the survivors of murdered loved ones and how we've pressured them to recycle their pain and anguish and give it back to the offenders we prosecute. I thought of the many ways we've legalized vengeful and cruel punishments, how we've allowed our victimization to justify the victimization of others. We've submitted to the harsh instinct to crush those among us whose brokenness is most visible. But simply punishing the broken, walking away from them or hiding them from sight, only ensures that they remain broken, and we do too. There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. That just, oh, I felt like that answered the why and challenged me to the how we can heal and change this. And that was really powerful for me. So I wanted to share that with everybody. I'm glad you did. Thank you. And with that, thank you everyone for listening to our review of Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is, I don't know, 